Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and today I'm really excited to share with you this conversation I had with author Jamila Ahmed. Her debut novel, Every Rising Sun, has just come out, and it is a retelling of the story of Scheherazade, whose name might be familiar to you. We talk in the interview about who she is in literature and what story you might know about her already. In this book, it's a first-person story where Scheherazade is the main character. It's set in 12th century Persia. And the story moves around uh, to various other places in the medieval Islamic world. It's a really fascinating combination of storytelling and also historical fiction and also Islamic history. And it's really fascinating. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jamila Ahmed. So I'm joined today by Jamila Ahmed. And welcome so much, Jamila. Thanks, Anne. Thank you for having me on Vulgar History. So you're here as the author of Every Rising Sun, which is a retelling. Well, it's several things. It's a historical fiction, but it's also a retelling of the story of Scheherazade. So I was hoping you could first, just to get everybody settled into a time and a place, explain your inspiration. What's what's the story of Scheherazade that you're familiar with? Yeah. So Scheherazade is the original storyteller of the Arabian Nights or 1001 Nights or Al-Layla Walayla, which is the Arabic title for the work. And the Thousand One Nights are essentially a collection of various folk tales from Persia, the Middle East, um, some even that are inspired by Indian folk tales, started kind of coalescing around the Middle Ages, around like the 900s, 800s, so quite early on. And, you know, there are different versions of the 1001 Nights. There's an Egyptian version, there's a Syrian version, there's also the versions that came to Europe in the 1700s. Um, and they all have different stories, right? Some are shorter, some are longer. It's really interesting, kind of the development of the Arabian Nights themselves. But what is the overarching thread of the Nights is the frame narrative of the storyteller, Scheherazade, and that's in every single version of the Nights. It's a frame story, right? And so, you know, the actual meat of the 1001 Nights is the internal folk tales that are collected, but they are threaded through with the story of Scheherazade. In basically every version of the Nights, Scheherazade is a Persian noble woman. She is the daughter of the vizier. And the kind of initiating incident of the Nights, as well as in Every Rising Sun, is that there is a king, he is married to his wife, he finds his wife in flagrante with, you know, a slave, with a a servant, and he loses it. He loses his gosh darn mind. And he, you know, he kills his wife. And then he starts marrying a virgin every night and killing her the next day. And at some point in this process, Scheherazade, the daughter of the vizier, steps in and she's like, something's got to give, somebody has to stop this, it's going to be me. And so she marries the king 
and as a way to extend her own life, but also stop this process of weddings, beddings, and beheadings, she starts a story on the night of their wedding. And then as the sun rises, cuts it off at a cliffhanger. And then the king is very intrigued and lets her live another day to finish the story. But she keeps doing this, right? So she keeps starting a story and then cutting it off at a cliffhanger. And you know, basically extends her life out for those 1001 nights until, you know, spoiler, in the original Arabian Nights, not in my book per se, but in the original Arabian Nights, he decides to, you know, spare her life, stop these killings, um, and they live happily ever after. Do you remember when you first encountered this story, like her story? I honestly, I can't remember exactly when I first encountered the story of Scheherazade precisely. It's definitely, you know, she's... a a character that I feel like I've always known, but I do remember being in elementary school and reading this illustrated edition of the Knights for Children. And, you know, again, the real meat of the story of like the original Knights is the folktales themselves. But what I loved the most was the story of the storyteller, right? And so, you know, Scheherazade is it's kind of funny kind of from like the knights themselves because she's a Sasanian noblewoman, which is a pre-Islamic Persian empire. But the stories themselves are very much rooted in the Islamic world. And so she is ostensibly in this like fictional pastiche, a Muslim character. And so I would, I'm also Muslim. And so having this very strong, dynamic, like really interesting, heroic, right? This very heroic Muslim woman be the authorial voice in this narrative was I felt very kind of inspired by that. And I wanted more of that girl's story. And you know, there are a few retellings that focus Scheherazade that are floating around, but I didn't feel like any of them really grappled with the the history of the era in the same way that I wanted. And that's kind of what really drew me to start writing this book, which I started when I was 17. So it was very much born out of my own childhood interests, um, which I started writing as technically a child. So you just mentioned the history of it all. So can you explain the time and the place that your book is set in? Because assume, assume that I, which I basically, it's true, know very little about early medieval Islamic countries. Yeah. So the book is set. It's actually, it takes place. It's not a thousand and one nights. It's about a year or so. So it's very specifically set between 1191 and 1192. Um, And it spans quite a bit of the Islamic world at the time in terms of the actual physical narrative that's ongoing. So we start the story off in Persia. And at the time, the Persia is ruled by the Seljuk Empire. And the Seljuk Empire, you know, is this Turkic empire. So Central Asian folks that kind of came down um, in the 900s to Persia and, you know, basically established their dominance. But it also was quite an extensive empire. At one point, you know, they ruled over the Abbasid Empire. They ruled all the way up to the Anatolian Empire in Turkey. Um, and so there was the Seljuk Empire in Turkey. There was Seljuk Empire in Persia. There were Seljuks in Syria. They were sort of all over, but I'm very specifically focusing on the Seljuk Empire in Persia. And in the late 1100s, the Seljuk Empire is in its flop era in Persia, right? Like they're, they kind of peaked in the late 1000s, essentially. And then they've been in this decline over the last, let's say, 50 years. There's been a number of 
incursions from various invading forces, Oghuz, Turks, Khwarezmids, the Abbasid Empire, at this point, the Abbasid Caliphate, they're rising in power as well. And they kind of, and this is like played out in the narrative as well, the book, but they sort of have beef with the Seljuk Empire. And so they're funding um, a lot of these incursing new forces that are chipping away at the Seljuk Empire. The Seljuk Empire is a bit fragmented um, in Persia. There's one kind of suzerain overlord sultan, but you know the, the provinces are ruled by different maliks. It's sort of becoming every malik for themselves, which makes it very easy for these incursing powers to come in and just chew away at the Seljuk Turks in Persia. But it's also an interesting time period in that it is this very blended culture, right? So the Seljuk Turks have their own Turkic culture, which then mixes in with the with this very strong like Persian tradition of literature and poetry and language. And it's sort of this very unique blend for that era, just from a cultural standpoint as well. So that's like kind of where the book starts. And then there's a, a section where they go, where they're in Baghdad and the Abbasid Empire which is, you know, they're doing well for themselves at this point. And it's like this really, and what I really wanted to focus on there was just kind of highlighting the glories of that empire and how just, you know, just the wealth and the culture um, in that space. And so the Abbasid Empire is, uh, Abbasid Caliphate is one piece of it. And then the third kind of historical piece, set piece of the novel is the Third Crusade. And so that's taking place in Palestine, parts of it kind of, connect into Syria a bit, but we're set in Palestine for the book. And it is, it's a crusade with some names that people are familiar with probably. So there's Sultan Saladin, um, there is Richard the Lionheart, and they're kind of going at it over dominance of the Holy Land. You know, but I tell that story not from the crusader perspective, but from the perspective of the Muslims, right? How it feels to be defending your homeland against these invaders who perceive you as barbarians and also, you know, have this religious incentive to basically destroy you and your home. And so these are kind of the three major historical points that the book maps onto. And I just see in your your biography here, just that I found online, um, that you've studied medieval Islamic history. So this is stuff that you know very well, sounds like, clearly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's, it's a very rich era, so I would not, uh, posit myself as an expert, right? It was, I, this is a, a, a college major and, um, you know, but it was very much kind of governed by my interest in medieval Islamic history that predated my college studies, right? Like I think the book, which I started writing as a senior in high school sort of drew me into this piece of history as well. And so a lot of what I studied in college ended up blending into the book, even if I didn't directly study, like take classes on Seljuk Persia, which is sort of a niche time period, right? There, It isn't as if it's one of those big historical eras that there's been a lot of academic work in. Although one of the cool things about working on this book for so long, like over a decade, was that in the time period that I started working on it and the time period I ended it, there actually had been like a lot of really strong Seljuk scholarship occurring, Seljuk Persian scholarship in particular, which I was then able to like adapt into the book to try and like, you know, iron out some historical details to really bring it to life. The way that you've put together the story of Shahrazad in this very specific time and place is really, it's really interesting and it really grounds the story. 
in a way where I was like reading it and then I was just kind of like flipping back and forth, just reading, I don't know, just finding some brief articles for myself to be like, where is this? What is this? And like, wait, what is the story of Scheherazade? Just trying to figure out what you were pulling from real history and what was kind of your own invention. It was like you you weave a, a magical spell, not unlike Scheherazade in this book where it was I was carried along and I was so so much enjoying it. And I think you have, in the character of Scheherazade, the way you describe the story at the beginning of this interview, that she is such a force, such a heroic character. Like she chooses to marry this king. And I don't know if I had appreciated that when I've kind of vaguely knew her story before. So how did you go about turning her into the heroine of this book? I mean, I think you've already got a lot of really great, strong material there to begin with. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, right, that was always the most fascinating part. Like what is the psychology of a person who would throw themselves into the lion's mouth like that? And she's a young woman, right? She's like a a teenager, both in my novel, but also, you know, in the original night, she's an unmarried woman in like the middle ages, right? She's not going to be, they married early back then. That was always really fascinating for me. And, but I wanted a character that felt real, like kind of like a real teenager, but also somebody who was smart and was learning. And that's like a big part of her arc for me is that she starts this book out with certain preconceived notions about the role of women maybe, or who gets sympathy, whose story gets told. And that that grows over time. She also, I think, makes a lot of mistakes or makes decisions. I would say here's what she does. She makes decisions based off of imperfect information that she has leading to imperfect results. And then she has to scramble to kind of resolve those issues too. But she's always, I think for her, she's always trying her best. She has a strong moral compass about wanting to do right by people, do right by the people she loves. And that for me was sort of the thread of the character that I was consistently trying to pull out. But she's also learning about herself in this process, right? She's learning like, what does it mean to love somebody? What does it mean to be loved? What does it mean to not love just people, but love like an empire, right? Love a culture. What does it mean to really put yourself out there in this broader world as a young woman and be taken seriously? What does it take to be taken seriously? And so there's all these kind of different character dynamics of Scheherazade that I'm I'm trying to develop um, into a hopefully satisfying conclusion at the end. And also, let's talk about the story the stories within the story, because what Scheherazade is known for in in The Thousand One Nights and then also in your book as well, is she is a naturally gifted storyteller. So your book contains the stories or many of the stories that she tells. How did you how did you decide what the stories were going to be that she was going to tell? Yeah. So the stories are inspired by the knights, but they're all original. Like none of them, I'm not readapting or retelling um, internal folktales that already exist. These are very much kind of created for the book, but they also, I think, are inspired in a lot of ways by the stories within the nights. And so, for example, there's one story where they have to burn these different colored fish to try and get some kind of message across. And that was in one of one of the night stories that I read. And I thought that was so weird and so funny and I wanted to incorporate it. So like little details like that are incorporated throughout to give it that feeling of time and place and authenticity. But the stories themselves are all, you know, made up by me and by my Shahrazad. And then in terms of like where it all kind of ended up, like I am not a big planner when it comes to stories. 
the book itself kind of just was just like step by step by step. There wasn't this like kind of overarching plan. Like I kind of knew the destination and I knew where it began. And then the middle was just whatever happens and kind of similar with these stories as well, these internal stories. And I actually originally, so the stories that are told are, it's like one overarching narrative. It isn't a bunch of smaller narratives. And I'd originally wanted like a bunch of distinct folktales the way that it is in the original nights. But then I ended up just creating this like story within a, this longer story within a story. Although again, within the, within that internal story, there's a bunch of other little stories as well to get that kind of pastiche of folktales across, but it sort of just happened. It's also, I think, you know, like you have to also keep in mind, like what is Shahrazad trying to do with these stories? She is trying to remind, to bring back her murderous kind of woman hating husband to this fact of, listen, women are people like we're not all horrible. We make mistakes, but like men, we are fully fledged people and you shouldn't just have a vendetta against all of them based off of being harmed by one woman. And so there's that piece of it. There's also this piece of Shahrazad working through a lot of her own issues in the in these narratives as well. And it's just such a challenge to you as a writer. I, I'm just imagining writing the story, you know, grounding it in the history and then also putting the story within the story, but then making those stories sort of resonate with what's going on. It's, I don't know, congratulations, honestly, that you put all that together. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a lot. You're describing that. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, just reading it. You know, I'm just like, I was along for the ride. But when you're describing kind of how you put it together, I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, so much work would have gone into making this very readable story. Can you talk about Shahrazad's sister and that character? And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Yeah, so her sister is named Dunya Zad, and she is... Similarly, she's in the original Knights, and she is like Shahrazad's like best friend. I think as what always comes across to me, she is in there with her in the bedroom, prompting her stories, being a support. And I loved that dynamic so much. The dynamic between these like two sisters who really adore each other, but also like I wanted to create a very like lifelike sister relationship, right? And so uh, Dunya is like Shahrazad's number one cheerleader, but also you know, I think calls her on her shit a lot. And they have this like really, like they both think like the other is like the best person in the world, but also maybe sometimes the most annoying person in the world, right? Which I think is very true to a sibling dynamic. But I also wanted her to have her own, not just be Shahrazad's shadow, but also have her own kind of arc and her own struggles. And so, you know, she experiences her own loss. And then the ending of the book, very much hinges on Dunya's actions. Uh, but in some ways, she's also following in her sister's footsteps. And then how did you go about developing the character of Shahrazad's husband? Yeah, so Shahrazad was kind of a very fun character to write. And I wanted to give him nuance. So he is, you know, he is the one who's out here killing all these women because one woman cheated on him, right? And that's not a very likable character at bottom. You're like, this man low-key sucks. But I also, I think to create a book where you're sort of interested in the character, they just can't be 100% evil. And so I have this beginning where like, you know, he is really sweet with like Scheherazade and you can tell that he like likes her as a person. And there's like some flashbacks as well, where you can see that he was, when they first like came to the palace, he was incredibly kind when they were children after they lost their mother, he was incredibly kind to her. So he has this like kernel of kindness and it, and it flashes in and out throughout the book, but he's also like a very hurt man. And I think unfortunately a lot of, I think it's very true to life that like when men are hurt, particularly by women, they turn to violence and that's not great. But at the same time, like, I think I'm, you know, I'm politically, I'm, you know, somewhat of like a prison abolitionist. I do believe in redemption and I don't want this idea that a character is completely irredeemable. And so there has to be this like kind of core of humanity that is in Sharyar to sort of make that make sense. But then, you know, they do have this great, Sharyar and Sharazad do have this great dynamic, which I think over time does develop into genuine respect. And I think as Shahriar feels this respect developing and this care for this person, he starts sort of, he'll kind of, you know, rubber band away from her a little bit or be, you know, kind of react to that because he's not ready for the emotional intimacy that that kind of thing presages, right? And so he was a very complex character and I wanted to have this like kind of complex dynamic between Shahrazade and him where Shahrazade at one point, like at like in one way, feels a great deal of disgust at his actions. That disgust kind of grows over time as well. 
But then also, you know, she has this childhood crush on him and there it's hard for her to shake that feeling of like a first love for him as well. And so she's kind of juggling both of these really big emotions with this very kind of emotionally volatile man. Another main character in the book is Scheherazade's father. Can you talk about how you developed that, that character? Well, I mean, to me as somebody like I'm, I'm aware of the Thousand One Nights, but you know, thinking about things like Aladdin and whatever, like the the role of the vizier is is one that I'm aware of would have existed in these sorts of courts, and that's her father's role. So, what were you what were you thinking when you're developing that character? Yeah, so you know, he is the vizier, and he, that again, that's like something from the original Knights, the daughter of the vizier, Shahrazad, and so I. Um, kind of had that in mind. And then, you know, Vizier is basically a counselor, like number one advisor to the king, right? He is the king's right-hand man. And so that's what I wanted for, that was her dad's role. And I really just wanted a father who's like trying to do right as a counselor, but also by his own daughters and who genuinely like, he's like a hashtag girl dad, right? He loves his daughters, adores them. And also has a great deal of love for Shariar, like kind of sees him as a son and then is very just like disgusted by what his, what like Shariar is doing and kind of, but is also sort of at, like cannot figure out how to manage the situation. And so Shahrazad goes to her father and is like, put me up as his next wife. Um, And then her dad is not happy about it, but also I think sees her point to some extent and has faith in her that she can do this. And so... I think against, in some ways, against his better judgment, agrees to take this path. But, you know, he is like at all times, like a very like supportive, loving father. In a lot of ways, he's inspired by my own dad. And, you know, for me, it was also important just like kind of from a perspective of writing about Muslim characters to have a father who is happy to have daughters, right? Cherishes his daughters, respects his daughters, isn't out here like, oh, I want sons, like kind of pushing back against like certain stereotypes about what Muslim men are like and that he is this very like sensitive soul in a lot of ways is kind of moves more quietly, I think, than um, folks might expect. I think that that comes across. It's, I just really want to let the listeners know who haven't read your book yet that all the characters are just really, really well-developed and really well-rounded. And it's a era and time in history that I had not read a book about before, but just, I think the characters are also kind of relatable and understandable. Like it just, it just draws you in. Yeah. And I think I really wanted, right. Like at bottom, like there's all this history that goes into it, but it's just like a hella dramatic narrative, right? Like I love a dramatic story. And so, you know, there's all this stuff that's kind of setting place in the time, but really, I think at bottom, it's just like a bunch of interesting people doing weird stuff and just causing all kinds of shenanigans and drama. And that was always like the first byword for me in this book. So did you find, you mentioned a couple of times that you started writing this when you were a teenager, you're now an adult person, like how th- your understanding of the characters or how the story developed, like as you matured yourself, did you see that journey in the characters? Yeah, I think like the, I think, you know, Shahrazad, when she starts the book, holds maybe slightly like unsympathetic retrograde views about certain things. You know, in particular, she does not have a lot of sympathy for Shariar's adulterous wife. And she's like, yeah, she's like a bad woman. She did a bad thing and she deserves a bad ending. And that was kind of my view too when I was 17, right? Like when I, you know, first read The Knights, I was like, this is a natural conclusion for this woman's arc. And then through the course of the book, Shahrazad, is put in these positions where she is not able to act perfectly, right? And where she feels herself constricted 
by her role in some ways and by the expectations of that. And she starts seeing like, okay, I can actually understand why somebody made a series of terrible decisions that led to this fate. And maybe they do deserve more empathy and sympathy than I had originally given them. And for me, that was also part of my own growth from childhood to adulthood, right? Like stepping away from being very sheltered and kind of going into a world where I'm making my own mistakes and feeling like, you know what, I can see why people do things that are not great. And maybe they deserve more grace than is provided to them. There's a part towards the end of the book where I think Shahrazad, it's mentioned that she's 20 years old at that point, I think. And I was like, oh my gosh, like it felt like so much has happened. I'm like, but that's just been a year. Yeah, she's still an extremely young person. But just so I don't know, I was imagining by that point, she was like 25 or something. But yeah, she starts the book when she's 19. And then actually, I aged her up a little bit with my own age. I think initially, I made her 17, which was my age at the time. And then I felt like, you know what? She is making a lot... She's making like mistakes, but also is operating a little bit more maturely. So I like gave her two more years. I was like, you've earned this, Shahrazad. You earned the ability to be 19. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the sort of thing where like... I I don't know. I I just lost track and I'd forgotten how young she was. But you're right. Like everything you're saying about how her understanding of things and how it develops, it's very much like a a thing that I think a lot of people go through between ages, I don't know, you know, 16 to 20 or something. But she's just doing it in this extremely dramatic life or death sort of way. Yeah, exactly. And honestly, again, like I think initially when I planned the book, I planned for it to be to last three years. And then, you know, I got... I got to a point where I was like, I can actually get this arc done in one year. So it's 365 Arabian Nights. My bad. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, the story has been retold so many times. I was just before just preparing for this interview, I was looking up kind of a bit about the history of the book and like some versions of it. It's always called A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, but some of them have like a hundred stories. Like it's not always, yeah, that many nights. Yeah, exactly. How would you describe this book? set in the time and place, the story it's telling, coming out in 2023. Like you started it, you know, many things in the world were different at that time, but it's coming out into the world now. Like what what sort of connections do you see to today's world with your story? When I started this book, it really was in the midst of the Iraq war and the occupation in Iraq, occupation and war in Afghanistan. And a part of the underlying drive of the book too was to challenge a lot of preconceived notions about the Muslim world, right? This idea that it's like violent and barbaric and oppressive to women. And I really wanted to highlight like, you know, there is obviously, this is, this is the world today. This is the world a thousand years ago. There is always violence occurring, but it's not culturally specific by any means, but also specific to um, the medieval Islamic world and the Islamic tradition. It is very rich in like literature and poetry and history and sophisticated in a way that, you know, is more than comparable to European courts at the time, right? It is, it's a very relatable world in a lot of ways, but it's also unrelatable in the sense of how learned a lot of people were and how sophisticated. And so I really wanted to kind of drive that through the richness of the oeuvre at the time. And so throughout the book, I'm talking about books Shahrazad is reading, books other people are reading, poems, and just like um, philosophy. And there's like this great library um, called the House of Wisdom, Beit al-Hikmah in um, Baghdad that they visit. And it's just this like repository of, you know, works upon works, which actually was burned in 1250 in the Mongol invasion, unfortunately. But, you know, there is just this like really rich world and also kind of like centering Baghdad as like a part of the 
book was again, like a response to like the decimation, devastation of the city and the whole country that occurred because of American war. And, you know, I think it's easy in some ways to be like, oh, well, you know, if we bomb these countries, it's fine because there's nothing going on there. But like quite to the contrary, like you're destroying thousands of years of history, right? I mean, similarly, there's a part, there's a story within a story that occurs in Mogadishu, uh, which we, you know, Black Hawk downed in the 1990s, right? So like, there's a lot of parts of the world that American European forces have destroyed in the last like 50 years. And what has been destroyed isn't just like rocks and sand. It is thousands of years of human culture. Thank you for phrasing that so well, because I was just reading about this part of the world and it's been something I've been learning a bit more about lately, but just like my, you know, Western education, when you learn about the Crusades, it's like Richard the Lionheart, but it's like, no, this is what was going on. And this is how learned these people were. And this is the culture that was going on. I think that's so valuable and so important to, yeah, yeah, just to make it be like, no, this is this, these areas have their own incredible history as well. It's not just like a place full of, you know, enemies to, to fight. Right. And it's part of global heritage too, right? It's not, it's like, it's specifically Persian, Arab, African culture, but it's also global culture, the same way European culture is part of global culture, right? And then even with Richard the Lionheart, whom you mentioned, like who, who's venerated this great chivalric ideal, but there is the, he's also, a, he's like dead ass a war criminal, right? So there is this uh, massacre at Acre that I mentioned in the book that happened historically where, you know, basically him and Saladin are negotiate, negotiating over the exchange of prisoners in Acre. And they have not just, not just, you know, soldiers, but they also have women and children who are in prison at the garrison in Acre, like Muslim women and children, Arab Muslim women, Arab children um, and women. And um, they're negotiating over this exchange of prisoners. And, you know, Richard the Lionheart is demanding, you know, we want our prisoners back. We want this piece, the true cross back. And we also want however many hundred thousand dinars um, in exchange. And they have, they have the pr- prisoners and give the prisoners, they can give the true cross. But they don't have the money. And so they're trying to negotiate him down and Richard the Lionheart, instead of negotiating it, agreeing to negotiations, uh, basically takes all the prisoners out into the field where the Muslim army can see what's happening and executes all of them, right? For this failure to negotiate. And that is a real historical thing that happened, which is genuinely awful. And so I wanted to include that as sort of a pushback, just kind of, not even pushback, just like gray, just like gray these narratives, right? That like your heroes are not necessarily heroes to other people. And that's important to keep in mind. No, exactly. And I think that's what's so important about books like yours to just sort of expand out very uh, different cultures, other sides of kind of stories that are well known in a certain way to see what was going on on the other side as well. So when this episode of this podcast comes out, your book will have just come out that week. So I mean, best of luck with all of that. Do you have any um, events or anything that are coming up? Like, is there a way that people can keep up with what you're doing with this book? Yeah. So um, I'm on Twitter. So you can follow me, Jamila Ahmed underscore on Twitter. And there was an event that already, my debut launch event happened Center for Fiction for Every Rising Sun. But definitely, if you're interested in this stuff, read read the book, read Every Rising Sun. I think it's pretty okay, is my personal review. <laughs> um, and as things pop up, I will definitely post them on Twitter. And, um, you know, I hope people, like it is, I think there's a lot happening here. But like I said, first and foremost, it's a story. It is a, it's meant, it's just, 
about people being people and everything else that follows, I think is good. But really, I hope people just enjoy the story for what it is. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thanks so much, Anne, for having me. This has been delightful. So this book we're talking about, Every Rising Sun, written by Jamila Ahmed, is available now everywhere, wherever you get your books from. And it's such a fascinating reimagining of a story that some of us might have already known from A Thousand and One Tales, but it's just, what if Scheherazade was a main character? It's such a great idea. And as Jamila explained, it was really such a passion project for her. So you can pick up that book wherever you get your books. There's a link in the show notes if you want to pick up a copy from bookshop.org using that link in the show notes. Sends a little bit of money to help support me and this podcast. You can keep up with this podcast on Instagram and threads at Vulgar History Pod and also on TikTok at Vulgar History. There's Vulgar History merch is available at vulgarhistory.com slash store. And also if you want to get early ad-free access to all episodes of Vulgar History, well, you can get that by joining our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash Writer for at least $1 a month, you can get the early ad-free access. And if you support us with at least $5 or more a month, then you get bonus episodes as well. And also membership into our super secret sexy Discord community, which is a new thing we're doing, which has been really fun. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I really hope you all read Jamila's book. And until next time, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Messy, one of the hosts of Bitches on Comics, the most welcoming place for LGBTQ plus folks and women to chat comics, fiction, and pop culture. Bitches are both wanted and encouraged on our podcast. We speak with amazing guests about the media they've created, critiqued, and loved. And you don't have to just take our word for the great time we're having over here. We've been named a best comic book podcast by several publications, including Book Riot, The Mary Sue, and Comic Book Herald. So tune in and listen to us talk with your faves like Carmen Maria Machado, Amy Chu, Mari Naomi, Anthony Oliveira, and many, many others. Our whole goal is to include more folks in the comic book and pop culture world and to help new readers find comics and speculative books they'll love, with no shade for being new. You can find Bitches on Comics wherever you get your podcasts, and you can learn more at bitchesoncomics.com.